Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. A few weeks ago, I sat down with Elvis Costello. We talked about his new album, Look Now, and a whole lot of other stuff. You can read some of that interview in the latest issue of Rolling Stone. You can watch some video of it on rollingstone.com. But here on Rolling Stone Music Now, we have an uncut version, and we're going to play it for you right now. So your new album, Look Now, I'm enjoying it immensely. And it's an album that, that sort of demands headphones, I would say. You described it, even in your thinking before you made the album, as an uptown pop. Yeah, album. I was just trying to think of a way to distinguish it from like a sort of little box with people going mad in it, you know, kind of rock and roll record. That's obviously that which we made, like put the red light on, play, and hope to get the magical take. Pardon me, my band would tell you, that sometimes they've had to settle for a take that they don't. They go, there's a little thing went wrong there. But I go, yeah, but listen, it's got the feeling. And that's one kind of record you can make. And this is the other kind, which is you work out what you're going to play. And then you go in the studio with the confidence and that you know what the picture is supposed to be. And you try and get it to sound as free as you can. But you know that you're going to leave spaces for other elements. So that's the uptown element. I just meant in the sense that it's a... That little bit more chosen rather than just down to chance. I guess I was curious as to what other albums, what other artists were residents of that sort of uptown pop neighborhood. In oh, Dread. there's there's, there's yeah. loads of the Dusty one I met, the one I mentioned to Pete Thomas was Dusty and Memphis because it's always been a favorite record because Dusty made a lot of records uh, that were great because of her singing and and some of them really great arrangements as well that were made in England. But when she went and recorded in Memphis, that there was a just a much better feel. So I said, if we could get a feel, and that's what marks uh, the way we think about and the way we feel music now, particularly as this group, the Imposters, is a different group than the group I started out with. We we favor and you have strengths in different areas than that first group, because obviously the three of us that have played together for forty years should have learned something. Mm. You know, we should have gathered some things and maybe put aside some other qualities of music that, that seemed all important when we started out. They may, you, if you just stayed with the same playbook, it wouldn't be very interesting. And Davey brings a lot of different things to it because he's a guy who plays with a rhythm, predominantly rhythmic feel. He can still come up with nice melodic inventions, but that isn't his main thing. It's the groove. And, uh, and he's a great singer, which we didn't have any singers in the... In, it's arguable whether I was a singer early on, you know, I mean, it's like, so there were never any way to do the vocal arrangements on records, which I usually tracked in the studio. Now we've worked for a couple of years with a couple of really great singers and we've got a rapport. So Dave, I worked out all the vocal arrangements in my demos, but Davey and I sort of cast them. So let's sing in this combination of voices here, this combination here. And that brings it, it makes it, you know, rather than just sort of getting the typical sound of a vocal group, but actually work out in the same way as you would, you wouldn't settle on just any old guitar sound or keyboard sound. You'd work until you got the one you wanted, you know. Having seen them live, I completely buy it multiple times. I, I completely buy that The Imposters is an entirely different band than The Attractions. Yeah, yeah. Of course, the difference is one person. Yeah, but that's a big difference. There's a lot more air and space. You know, it's a different, and we're all different people than we were 40 years ago. Why wouldn't we be? There's this idea of sort of a, a romantic primitivism that's sort of privileged in uh, the discourse about rock and roll. People want to believe that, in some cases, it's better to know nothing and to just have it come from your soul with no 
knowledge of the craft of music or the craft of songwriting. Yeah, I, I, think, I, I, yeah. I maintain certain elements of that in my approach, truthfully myself, particularly with regard to the guitar. I understand that, but I, I think it's a false science, that, because uh, it is, it's a contrived formula. And it's exactly the same as a, you know, a book learned musician looking down on those same musicians as you're describing because they don't know anything. Both things are false. The mm. real truth of it is the feeling is the feeling and the technical things that you pre-agree, they can be the absence of technique just as surely as a, a display of technique. You know, agreeing to pretend you don't know more than three chords is, is a conscious artistic decision that some great bands have made. But I don't know too many bands that you're speaking of that really don't know other music. You know, the example would be, you know, Jim Jarmusch's film, Gimme Danger? Yeah. Like, what does that tell you? What, what were the Stooges listening to? Right. You know, they were listening to Albert Eiler. You know, they weren't listening just to three-chord garage band rock. They had awareness of other types of music and other kinds of expression. Iggy just heard it that way. And the flip side, as you were alluding to, there's the idea of sort of the Zen idea of beginner's mind, where if you can get into, and I think that's what you're meaning, maybe that it relates to your approach on guitar, where maybe there is some aspect of either being primitive or pretending that you're primitive. I don't know whether I was ever pretending. I definitely, <laughs> I, de I definitely made a, cho a conscious choice to step up and speak up a little bit more, because when you're playing just for yourself and you're, you're realizing songs, just in the space that you're in, which could be a bedroom or something, and, and maybe just going to play in little clubs, little folk clubs, and then you discover that people talk over the music, so then you have to put the keys up and try and command the room with the volume a, a little bit without wrecking the song. And then it's a short jump to writing a song that fills the space. Mm. And that's what I did when I wrote some of the songs on the first, that ended up on the first album. I didn't play very many of them in public as a solo singer, so I appeared to come out of nowhere, but if you listen to my first record, it references lots of music that wasn't particularly groovy mm. in the hipster book of 77. Van Morrison probably. Van Morrison and yeah. Marvin Gaye. You yeah. know, there's, I mean, the rhythm of one of the songs, whether it, it sounded at all like it was taken from You Ain't Living Until You're Loving by Marvin mm. and Tammy. The rhythmic idea, that's yeah. just that, 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 that's, how far off the model I could possibly expect to be, given that I'd never be, really been in a studio before, but for a couple of times in a little demo room, you know? You've... And you I'm can, not Marvin Gaye, by the way, that's yeah, the other thing, well, which is the big drawback of trying to sing <laughs> it's like a drawback it. for all of us, yeah. Yeah, it is, uh, yeah. You've learned to read and write music, uh, which is ex highly unusual for a rock star, uh, you know? I, well, one, yeah. I'm not a rock star, two, <laughs> it's... No, I'm not. Yeah, it yeah. doesn't say on yeah. my business card, rock yeah. star. Um, I'm just a musician, I'm a songwriter, so I, when I needed to gather the skills to communicate my ideas more clearly and not necessarily have my ideas bent out of shape by excellent, but inevitably, you know, they, they were arrangers who had their own ideas of what I was trying to say. I was working with some people who only spoke with music, the musical code. And Julia Lester, yeah. Yeah, with yeah. the, the Brosky Quartet. Yeah. Now, I'm glad I did it now because it's opened up the possibilities of doing something like this record where I could write out, sketch out all my ideas in advance for the orchestration and then work with Steve Naive who could have filled every available space on this record and would have done gladly and wonderfully, but that would have been a different record. I worked with him closely to say, this thing you, you, you've made up for this part of the song is so great, let's hear that. 
because I, by the way, have a string section coming in here, and that's going to take us into the chorus, and then you join them and you play together. You said something to the extent that you... Simple way, simple way of thinking of it, but it's a little more intricate than that, but that's essentially what we're doing. You, know? you said that with Nick Lowe, you realized, when Nick, when Nick yeah. Lowe was producing Steve, yeah, he, he, realized, he, he realized you had to distinguish between something like the, the genius of what Steve well, does the, and the, the mischief. The, 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 the magic and the mischief, okay, really, because yeah. it's really, he'd startle you with things he'd do. But then the next time that part would come around in the song, he'd play it totally differently. He'd harmonize it differently or he'd play it different rhythmically. And I go, no, Steve, the first figure was just the thing that you're going to remember forever. The second thing is also really smart, but it just doesn't stick in the head as much. So Nick, for all he's given the, you know, people always like celebrate that he was a very spontaneous producer. But I'm thinking more about when we got to Armed Forces in 79, where we were adding things as an overdub. Nick was actually very good at working out two things. One, where, where to say, repeat that. Don't change it, repeat it. And the other thing was that he, that he also, by then, trusted me if I said, we're going to go into the studio on a microphone and we're going to go, woo, 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 or something like in two-part harmony, and it's going to be great. And, and at first, he, he obviously looked at me like, you're out of your mind. But sometimes when you put those things, what they were were like little orchestral ideas that I was using what we had at our disposal, which was a, a mini moog and processing your voice in some weird way. And all records are arranged, even the most raw ones, there's some sense of where you start and stop. It's nonsense to say you're just playing open-ended. Well, Very few people do that. You wrote in your book that uh, rock bands don't need written notation, they communicate via gestures and threats. A lot of them do, you know yeah, that's yeah, true. You, yeah. I know somebody you spoke to recently <laughs> that, that, that definitely knows what that is. Having that vocabulary and that ability now, how does it affect... Well, by the way, yeah, yeah. what do you suppose conductors are doing? They're gestures. doing gestures. And sometimes, you know, the history of conductors is there's some real tyrants. Yeah. And there are people in the ranks of the orchestra who are sitting there in the spell of that, that, you know, person who's guiding the way the music is being ordered and how the flow is happening. And there's other people that are deeply resenting it because they know, they think they know that the where the truth in this music is. So... Every form of music has that kind of exchange. It's not unique to rock and roll or whatever you're calling it, you know. I think one of the things that makes this album look now really interesting, and I also thought it was really funny, uh, last night at this listening event, someone was trying to throw, I think it's a combination of Get Happy and Almost Blue, and, and you, were, it was just, you just weren't having it. That's not how you want. <laughs> well, it's not how I want. It just isn't that. Yeah, you, don't, it's, you, you know, want to make something new, that's not like something... That, that's, yeah. a, that's a critic shorthand kind of like... That's like for the bit that they'll print in the review that's one paragraph, where they're reassuring people that it isn't something that they're not going to understand. So the simplest way to convey that is it has some of the strengths of something that you've liked before. I understand why that happens. I led myself with the notion, you know, when I was asked to define generally the feeling of it, I said, well, when we started out, I said, if we could get the scope of Imperial Bedroom with the romanticism and the beauty of Painted from Memory, we'd have something. But does this record sound like either of those? Not really. It, because it is, obviously yeah. we've got, Imperial Bedroom is 35 or more years ago. It's not made in that moment of shift from very limited resources to apparently money no object you know we went and did a lot of silly things let's hire a harpsichord you know when we could have easily made the same sound on an electric keyboard but that's the fun of being in that moment where you're all about that kind of daredevil approach to recording i can't go back to the first time that happened any more than i can make this year's model again and it sound the same like as if i didn't know other stuff 
That would be a phony thing to do. But rock and roll records, as I've made lots of them, they're all different. They don't start from the point of, let's make one like we that. We just say, let's make one of these songs. At the same time, there is something of a, it is a hybrid, this record, because in your own words, it was an uptown uh, pop record, but also with, you said some, you wanted some kick in the rhythm section. It is Well, that's, it, no, yeah. that's what I think those yeah. records, I mean, yeah. the records that I'm t referring yeah. to, and I've just mentioned the Dusty record because it's a very obvious shift from the rather staid and sometimes quite lumpy rhythm section on the English records to the, you know, the, the, just the pocket of those Memphis record, the Memphis recordings. And the fact that Arif Madin really knew where the, the instruments should be vocally, instrumentally. Now, I'm not saying I'm on his level as an arranger, but I, I did know what I wanted to hear. And I worked carefully with the other members of the band and let them have their responsibility. Like Pete and Davey worked with Sebastian to get the rhythm to be just at the right weight. So we knew that when we added these things, it wasn't all going to topple over. You had an extraordinary thing happen, which is uh, Burt Bacharach was in the studio with you and the imposters. Uh, yeah. Well, it wasn't an accident. We, yeah, you know, yeah. we asked and, him to and do amazingly, it. <laughs> it was, you know, it was supposed to be Slash, and Burt Bacharach showed up. Yeah. But no, I, I mean, it, and it's a continuation of uh, a long-standing collaboration, which mm. you, you put it that you guys have been secretly writing more songs together. All well, the I don't think many people knew that we yeah. were doing it, other than the few people that have been at my shows when I've slipped one into the, you know, one mentioned that this was something I was working on with Burt. You know, we wrote this song for a film, 25, you know, is it 25 years ago? I think it is. And that led to an album, Painted From Memory, in 1998. That was, I guess, about 12 songs. 12 years ago, somebody approached us to turn that into a stage musical. And as I explained last night, you know, for one thing, most musicals made out of collections of existing songs only seek to tell the story of the songwriter or the performer, like the film, you know, the musical about Queen or the sure, musical yeah. about Buddy Holly. They're not a narrative that's threading through a series of songs that have their own narrative already. So it's a tricky thing to do, and we realized quickly that we would need to write more songs. But because of Burton, my disposition, we ended up with a greater accumulation of slow, melancholy, intense ballads. And I guess that just scared the proposed producers because it didn't involve any tap dancing. <laughs> and, and, you know, as I also explained last night, I am simultaneously working on an adaptation of Bud Schulberg's A Face in the Crowd with Sarah Rule, who's adapted Bud's original short story and his screenplay for Elia Kazan's film of the same story. And I've written 21 songs. Now, when you're dealing with a story which largely takes place on radio, television, at a baton twirling contest, a political rally, and so on and so forth, you can imagine that you, there are occasions for song that involve a lot more rhythm, that are a lot, a lot more pageant to them. So I, I understand why our songs may, perhaps didn't strike the backers as being a safe bet. Given the quality of the songs alone, I would say they were worth hearing. And that's when I went to Burt two years ago. I, I just said, we're going to wait forever for these songs to be produced in the, in the structure that we imagine. Why don't I record them and bring them out into the light and let's see where that leads. If then somebody is curious to hear the rest of them, great. If not, then we've made great recordings of a couple of them. And then I asked him to come in and lead the band. And that was incredible that he did that. You know? Turns up with the satchel, with the music, and directed me, everybody, the way he would have done any session with the same attention to detail and the same feeling and then plays like that, you know. 
How much of the arrangements do you fully hear in your head before you start writing them down? How much are you working out on a piano and then writing them down? Does it go straight from your head onto the paper a lot of times, or how does that work? A lot of the time it does. And with this sort of music, I think you can hear the the instrumental motifs in these songs are really part of the composition. They're not something added like a spice, like put some salt on your dinner, you know. The tune in Underlime that pays off is an instrumental chorus, for want of it. It, it lies where the, you might logically expect a chorus to be. But the song is an unusual form because of the nature of the story it's telling. It, it starts with a confident rhythmic flow, and then when it sort of reflects on what the character is thinking, the music sort of gets quieter. Most songs get louder when you get to the second section. It does the opposite, but that's only because the next section is sort of a tune that's playing in the environment of the song. I mean, mm. I'm trying to think like a picture, you know? Uh, I don't think that's a bad thing to do with music. You're trying to, you're trying to actually put people in a room or in some sort of environment where the drama that you're describing is actually occurring. The song is a, a picks up the story of a person I wrote about in a song called Jimmy Standing in the Rain, which I wrote for National Ransom, which is the last record made under my own name solely in 2010. That song was about a cowboy singer, I mean, a doomed prospect, a cowboy singer in the English musical, so you knew it wasn't going to work out for him. He's alcoholic. He's probably got the beginnings of tuberculosis. He has no money. He's, you know, finds comfort in the arms of a woman who calls out another man's name in the throes of passion. I painted a pretty pathetic picture and left him. She has the courtesy to weep afterwards. Yeah, so, and yeah, then, yeah. and then, you know, and it's sort of like about the traveling life. It's not a, it's certainly not my life, but it's little pieces of, I think it's related to what I was wondering about my grandfather, who was a traveling musician, my father, who certainly some of the, his later career was quite lonely. So I made it in, it put it all in a different time and told that tale and left this character sort of forgotten and abandoned on a railway station, a fairly bleak little story about him. And then I start, you know, like, writers all the time they pick up the thread of that story so I decided to do the same thing and I wrote the tale of how this same character is now it's 20 years later and the little bit of it of fame he had back then has brought him a turn on a on a 1950s panel show where they blindfold people and they ask them to guess the occupation or the identity of a guest a mystery guest and he's really running on the fumes of a little bit of a notoriety and he arrives where they're going to humiliate him, really. And he's put in the charge of a young assistant. And this is all in the lyric of the song. You know, she's maybe a little bit idealistic and sees him as a vaguely romantic figure from the past, but and he immediately shows an unhealthy interest in her, who her boyfriend is, and all her family, and he's flattering her, and she leans in. And, of course, it's a trap he's set lots of times, you know. That's really what the song is concerned with is whether she will lean far enough in to be in danger, whether he will take advantage of his, you know, of the situation and express his worst, you know, his worst impulses. There's a, a noticeably excellent and passionate vocal on that song, which leads us to a topic that you keep having to address while talking about this record, which, yeah. you know, and, and... For a little while longer. <laughs> yeah, for a little... Yeah, but, but first of all, there's been, I think, a, a certain misunderstanding where people... Mm. I mean, you're okay. I am absolutely fine. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, in a nutshell, what happened was I was two-thirds of the way through recording this record. I was about to go into the venue we were at last night, Electric Lady, and obviously the, the, the horn session and the string session. And I got a call from my doctor saying I needed to have uh, a malignancy that had been detected on a, on a regular checkup. 
uh, removed. I mean, I was fortunate in that I had been checked, I'd kept up with those things, and the expertise of the technician saw it on a scan, and, uh, you know, you have to do other tests, and the tests revealed that this was, um, was cancerous. And, mm. But it wasn't cancer. There's a big difference. There was a small contained area that needed to be removed surgically. I said in my statement, my specialist said, you should start playing the lotto, because this he didn't often see. Often people that have this degree of malignancy are already in a fight that's going to require repeated treatments, you know, with things like radiation and chemotherapy and so forth. I avoided all of that with one conclusive surgery. All I didn't do was give myself enough time to recover from actually an operation, which is not an insignificant event. I can't, it wasn't painful in any way but it does knock you out. And I just got out on the road and realized my energies were not where they needed to be to do my job properly. So now we all know, and <laughs> yes. uh, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be talking to you if I thought I wasn't gonna be around. Without, without beating this to death, so to speak, did it have you contemplating just mortality, your time left, and any Only, only as much. I mean, yeah. I remember taking my mother to see Bob Dylan in Liverpool. Yeah. Bob hadn't played in Liverpool since 1966, I think, when I took her, on her 70th birthday, which was 20 years ago. And it was only when I was sitting with my 70-year-old mother, who, of course, now I realize was still relatively young, yeah. that it struck me how many songs in Dylan's catalogue were on, upon the topic or were surrounded with a sense of mortality. And I'm not talking about the songs written since, say, Time Out of Mind or any or Love and Theft. I'm talking about songs written when he was 24. Yeah. And I could point at songs in my catalogue too, and probably other people who were in my generation that have that sense. What about my generation, for instance? Sure. You know, I hope I die before I get old. Even that's a thought about mortality. What a drag it is going, getting old, making Keith, you know, mother's little helper. Well, the angels wanted to wear your red shoes. Yeah, yeah. which I was 22 when I yeah. wrote that. So yeah. I don't think it's like you have to be closer to the end than the beginning to have those thoughts. You'll have to wait and see what the next record, if there is one, brings, you know. Uh, maybe that will have songs where those thoughts come to mind, but I had already written all these tunes, so I wasn't going to insert into them some false perspective that hadn't been in there before. I wasn't going to rewrite them to... I th I'm pretty certain that when I was at the microphone, I was very concentrated on what I was doing. But I also had a unique thing. As I said, I, I usually have arranged outwards from a vocal performance on so maybe 90% of my records. This is probably one of three records where I sang last, and mm. this was the most completed picture that I ever, I, I ever had when I stepped to the vocal mic. So I had just only a sense of joy when I was singing because everything was in place and it was like a magic feeling to have the strings swell up exactly where I'd imagined them to be, the background voices be there, so I sang the line that they would be responding to. And we could have easily found that these things were not in the right places, but I found just it was just a question of getting the measure of my so my the performance. Background vocals were there before Everything. your lead vocals. That's extremely unusual, isn't it? Yeah, but I wasn't. They're mostly call and response. Right. They weren't close harmony. There's a, a wonderful song, a "Burnt Sugar," that you wrote with Carol King. I think you said in 1995 and Six. In, in 1996 in Dublin. Yeah. Uh, how did this happen? Well, <laughs> I was. I mentioned Bob Dylan a minute ago. I was on tour with Bob. I was opening up from a run of shows where we did Paris and three nights in London and a couple of nights in Dublin. And on the last night of the of the, the tour, which was the second night in Dublin, I got up to what you know did my set, went back to see Bob's set. And there was Carol King on piano. 
like just in the band <laughs> i mean it was so strange you know and then and chrissy hind was singing as well in the band and then halfway through van morrison came up and sang a song like his song hmm. in dylan's set so and i'd been coming out on the finale and singing i should be released and bob brought me out again with van and we all did it on one mic and carol walked to the left of the stage as we went off no stage right we went stage left the three of us walked this way and there was no side to the stage and Carol fell about 15 feet and broke her wrist. So of course it was horrifying, you know, there's such a stupid accident could happen at a major gig like that. It should have never happened. I don't know what, what was up with the safety thing. Yeah. So, you know, she, I think was spending maybe a little while after that. I think it was after she recovered from that injury. I, I knew her just a little bit. Our paths had crossed a couple of times, but it had never been an opportunity. And she was visiting again and I asked her to come and, I said, what, what's the harm? You know, the, we wrote this song in an afternoon. It was beautiful. She played the piano. You know, it was extraordinary. You've got to remember, that if you're going to make a, a record with, that involves Carole King, you've at some point got to send it to her, and she's going to give you her opinion because mm. she's not shy about that. Because can imagine being 15 or 16 and going in the Brill Building and going, this is how it goes? Yeah. Imagine, like, the strength of mind it must have taken to be a teenager writing those songs which are now like over 50 years ago and and people are still singing them i mean so she's got very clear idea about music i mean she loves the recording i'm very pleased to say but the truth of it is how could i have taken burnt sugar into the sessions for painted from memory and go bert we're making a record together and the good news is i've got a song i wrote with carol king how could i do that right the next record i made was uh for the stars with Anselvivanata, the one after that was Nor when I was cruel. They, yeah. This song just didn't fit on any of those. It didn't fit on the River in Reverse. It, it couldn't have been on that album with Alan Toussaint. So is that the only song you wrote together, or is yeah. there a whole? Okay. Yeah, it's a pretty good one though, isn't it? it is. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the funny thing is, it, it ends up sounding uh, a bit like Steely Dan. I don't know if, if anyone says, said that to you. <laughs> no, I was. I don't. I don't know what. Well, I mean, I like that group. I like particularly the early records. You know, like the people always say that, I like your early Ed records, <laughs> the early angry ones. Yeah. No, but I do. I like their music well enough. Yeah. I, it never occurred to me it sounded like that. There's something about the way, particularly the, uh, I thought I was the first person to hear that, and then I saw one of the first reviews yeah. mention it as well. So people are hearing it. Is There's something about the way the uh, female backing vocals work. Well, they come, they, 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 you know, but that's where Brianna and Kitten almost become the lead voices. There's actually, if you listen carefully, Davey and I are still in there in falsetto, but I wanted it to be because it's part of the story you know the story the song is about a woman trying to get her life back and trust in somebody having a marriage broken up and she's dealing with her ex-husband who doesn't ever look after the kids and her kids are dealing with uh, her having a boyfriend and the neighbors are judging her it's like a it's a not unfamiliar story it's a story we probably you probably know somebody that's gone through that i know i have you know that was very much like the way you would write i felt like you would write with carol you try and get a story like that that everybody knew about and just try and express it in a way that hadn't been said before with that title line and the way she voiced the piano at the top that had a little twisted nature to it. And then, of course, at the end, now I got that horn figure that I wrote at the end, which is a little troubling, you know, it mm. doesn't sound like it. It doesn't suggest this all works out good. It's still going to be a struggle. But that, then what's the title of the song? You know, it's not a sweet song, but it's not a it's not a sad song either. You had uh, another song that you wanted Bert to work on with you, and he told you it was finished. Well, that was a pretty good compliment, I think, yeah. and I think it is a good song. I mean, I do think it is. It doesn't need a bridge, which would have been the logical thing that we often did when we were. Bear in mind, you see, 
<clears throat> people made an assumption about Painted From Memory when we worked together, that because Bert is such a famous melodist, that I must have been the lyricist, as, mm. as was Hal David in their collaboration. But Bert actually had a more open mind than people's assumptions in that we actually co-wrote the music of a lot of those songs. Some were just him, some were the different proportions of the songs are irrelevant now because all that matters is the finished draft. So I had been sort of, uh, I'd had the experience of making the first musical statement in a song which ended up being credited to both of us. And then he would sort of like, get inside the mechanism of it and say, why don't we stretch this phrase over like a longer bit or contract this or change this note? And then he would write some incredible melodic or harmonic idea which would answer. Or it would be the other way around. You know, the song would be going along and I'd say, maybe this should go to another place for a few bars. 20 years later, which is incredible that yeah. it's been 20 years. Some of those songs really feel like standards now to me. Toledo, it feels like they, it's always been there. Well, that's really good to hear because actually that's what you start out to do. I mean, I, I think anybody that gets a well-known song has a little tussle with the idea that it's wonderful to have, even if it's not a hit, like as in in the charts hit, but if it's a popular success with the people respond when you play it and they tell you it matters to them. That's kind of what you start out to do. But I won't deny that there's been times when I've been ill at ease with that by being justified by one or two titles. So somehow in time I've come round to it, maybe because of working with people who had had that experience for much longer, whether they be Paul McCartney or Burt Bacharach or other people that I wrote one or two songs with, that, you know, Painted From Memory songs have somewhat infiltrated is surprising to me, you know, that because they weren't like big commercial hits, but people know those tunes nonetheless, God Give Me Strength, and I uh, Still Have That Other Girl, This House Is Empty, and Toledo, those those particularly. An Imperial Bedroom really was a pivot record for you. It, it pivoted towards, in some ways, I would say the entire rest of your career, mm. uh, away from, you know, I remember someone once said that accused you of uh, leaving your punk roots, which I think is the most misleading thing you could possibly say about you. But you were pivoting away from... Yeah, that's uh, just you, the way they defined it, because they hadn't heard the other stuff I knew. Yeah. You know, I mean, the other stuff I loved, you know, uh, or they weren't listening very hard to the first record even, and didn't hear those references to music that maybe they weren't executed with such, so close to the model, but they didn't hear the swingy part of that record. As it was Americans playing it, they tended to play a little slower and more swinging. Then, you know, once we had the attractions, it was all bets were off and we were just heading for the finish line in every song in a great way. That's a terrific band. I'm not denying my other records, you know, by liking this one. They're just different. <laughs> yeah. They're all different. Thankfully, they are. They're not two of them that sound exactly the same. A guy at the listening party uh, tried to ask you what the what the Elvis Costello who played, you know, whatever specific show in That didn't go well for him. Did thinking, really? No, no. no. And I, I saw, well, the, the interesting thing <laughs> in, in answering that, I, you, were, you were so contemptuous at the question that I saw what I thought was a flash of your old self in the answer. So there we go. Well, that old self is not, <laughs> hasn't gone away. You know, uh -huh. it's like, be careful what you wish for there, sunshine. <laughs> you know, I mean, that was a stupid question. I'm sorry. I'm not going to listen. You know, we're having a nice chat about the music and all the things, and you asked, like, a really idiotic question, because you literally would not walk up to a judge and say, when you read a book about, you know, the law when you were 10, what would you think if you saw you wearing that stupid wig on your head? Do you really think you would do that to anybody in another life? You just wouldn't. Well, I think you... It's only yeah. because there's an eternal youth sort of theory 
thesis about rock and roll, which is nonsense, obviously, you know. But uh, that's why you would ask that. I don't know many people that do question themselves in this way. It's a, it's a false science, you know. I've, I've heard certain people in rock and roll speak that way, but I think that, that maybe they're... They're mostly people that speak about themselves in the third person, <laughs> in my experience. You know? But I think you heard an implicit criticism in that question, which is one, one reason why you reacted that way. Because the criticism is, or the idea is like, well, you would have thought it was rubbish because you had your head on straighter back then or something. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what you were... Or yeah. did I? Yeah, you right. Know, did you know me then? Right. Then you wouldn't say that if you, you know. I was lucky if I could get to the end of the set some nights, you know. <laughs> I don't mind having my head on straight. You might have had your self-righteousness on straight. That's what I'd say. Right. You know. Right. Maybe I, I was never there. Or maybe I was there some of the time. But you you were never that narrow in your own ideas anyway. I don't know whether but I was or not. You I don't think I was very the, narrow. Yeah, you were. I think, okay. yeah, yeah. I was and in different times in your life if I if I'm asked to think about it, which I I guess I was last night, but I wasn't interested in answering you yeah. know, subscribing. I have no obligation to answer any question. Sure. You know, yeah. it's where how they phrase it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If it's something that I think I can answer in some way that doesn't require me to stand on my head to do it, then I can, you know. <laughs> but literally, people are often asking you something that fits in with a theory they've already already made up. And I go, yeah, but I never think like that. I never, ever think like that. So you want me to be you, not me. So what's the point of asking me, you know? How did you see Bruce Springsteen's music relating to what you did back then? And how how do you see it now, just as two careers of... Two people who are fans of each other and, and some someone that you like. Oh, I, I mean, I you know I wanted, I wanted to somehow make magic out of the things around me the way he did in those very early songs. I'm talking about like the first two records before yeah. he broke through, which we knew, and my band would wanted to, we wanted to be like that. You know, mm. we didn't know how to be like that. Um, I'm talking about my semi-pro band now before I was a professional. I think there are there are songs like Radio Radio. I mean, uh, the original version of that song was Radio very indebted. Soul, right? Yeah, yeah, it was yeah, really yeah. indebted to like the, the the Bruce that wrote the Wild Innocent, the E Street Shuffle, and then obviously, then I did you know start out, and it was the strangest thing for Bruce to ask me, "How did we get the sound of My Aim Is True?" And I told him literally, "No money." Yeah, you know, because by then I knew he'd been locked in a studio in that dispute a couple of times. You know, he'd been locked in the studio a long time getting born to run and then a longer time probably again doing darkness you know and i think it was when we first we met very briefly in passaic early on he came to the show but you just had that kind of you know defensive conversation you don't really but the second time he did actually ask me a couple of questions which were sort of like the questions that i would have might have expected me to ask him you know yeah. So that's when you find out that everybody's standing there wondering, how did they do that, you know? And you wrote, uh, there's a song on uh, Get Happy that, that was sort of inspired by him, or inspired by the experience of watching It was really just a mo like yeah. watching, watching, it had the opening line, was sort of like thinking, well, Bruce has got all this mythology, and then I saw him in Nashville where none of that really had traction. And I suddenly realized, yeah, you could be talking half in another tongue here. And I knew that was true of my stuff. And I could see a trap that was being laid, which, of course, he, he leapt out of in, as he's continued to do, and, and most people do. But I could detect it, and I suppose that's as close to writing songs about the predicament of the performer uh, that, as I did early on. I mean, I wrote a few songs about what I'd observed around my dad. I uh, wrote songs about songs that are, are related to things like Jimmy Standing in the Rain. Suit of Lights is a similar kind of investigation. You know, it's about, it was 
inspired by watching my dad play, going around the clubs and the sort of loneliness and the presumption of the audience, and the lack of respect, because it's still a working job. It's just, you know, you're up there, you're still doing a job. You don't come up to somebody and go, see that pencil? I'm going to knock it out of your hand. Now, now how good are you at writing? Yeah. Nobody does that to you. So, and that's not self-pity. I'm just saying that's just acknowledging that it's still a job. There's part of it that's a job, and there's the other part of it that's massively over-rewarded. If someone like Bruce Springsteen had the larger-than-life career and image, your dad was an entertainer who was, uh, you know, a, a kind of a, a, with a substantial success, but a, a journeyman entertainer. Mm. You talk about it a lot in your book, but how did that affect the way, and still affect the, the way that you approach your own career, seeing this, this very sort of work-a-day career of a musician? I don't know. It's a, it, it does puzzle me that I knew so much about the workings of the business. Like, from childhood, I could see certain things were not, you know, I could tell that there were, there were people who were quite um, calculated, that uh, you know, there were opportunities that came to my father that were perhaps not ones he should have taken. Hmm. But uh, he was just trying to make a living, so I don't judge anybody. I never, I, you know, I can have a, I might have expressed strident opinions about things at different times, about fashions of music, but in the long run, I tend to think, well, you know, they're just doing their job, whatever it is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I haven't got a lot of time for the false snobbery of hipster music, mm. you know, of any kind, whether it be jazz or, or rock and roll, because it's just like you don't have the guts to try, is what it is, really, because mm. you're holding yourself back because you think you're going to be judged by some little chorus of people who couldn't do what you're doing anyway, so what does it matter? You've said that your dad went a little more psychedelic than you ever did. <laughs> he did. Yeah. He did. Oh, you see the picture, of, have you seen the book? You've seen the little picture of him, yeah. and it was like... You know, he was, the, he yeah. was the one that took me to, I was Lord Kitchener's valet in the, in the King's Road. I never would have gone there of my own accord. I mean, we were just out in the western suburbs of, you know, out in the suburban part of London to the west, which then was still called by its county names. And uh, everybody dressed kind of in a nondescript kind of way. I don't really think much about the long hair thing had caught on till I went to live in Liverpool and then we were still at school so there was limited options for growing your hair anyway you know your collaboration with Paul McCartney seems to uh, have left a, a trace in, in Paul's head he said that he'd sometimes pictures you talking in his I, head. Love that. I, think I love that quote yeah, yeah. McCartney no you know like I don't know why they, why I why I was brought into the picture but I suppose because we had those kind of like conversations when we were when we were producing together you know not when we were writing mm. the writing was completely like flowing you know it was you know i mean last year a big lavish box of yeah. flowers and dirt came out where you know it was a it was quite a, a moment to see there's a whole album of acoustic guitar demos was, with paul mccartney so it kind of blew my mind i mean i gotta say it was just the most wonderful thing and that it had there were these you know, handwritten notes that Paul had kept, even a letter I'd written to him. You know, it was so formal. Dear, it wasn't dear Mr. McCartney, but it was like after our first writing session on pink note paper that I must have gone out. He liked pink note paper. I'll like, <laughs> get some pink note paper. And, uh, you know, in my own terrible handwriting and everything, it wasn't typed or it wasn't an email, of course, then. So it was really beautiful to hear those songs as we had first imagined them. But it also reminded me when you listened to the band recordings of the same songs done a few months later where we were co-producing sort of allegedly there's obviously then it's pulling away to a different sort of style that he wanted to take the record whereas i wanted to keep it very basic and then it, you know we agreed to disagree about that 
So maybe that's what he's referring to because he knows that he, th he would say I was the guy that was always tipping towards the stripped bear kind of approach, but that isn't borne out by the records I was making at exactly the same time, which were the most expansive I ever made. Yeah. You know, where I, I was given literally more money than I probably needed and spent it, you know, I spent it on going to five cities to make a record and I wouldn't change a note of it, but I also wouldn't do much of it the same way if I had the same 12 or 15 songs now, obviously, because I, for the same reason as I don't hear it like the first records now, I hear it like now. Paul. Or rather, I hear it like, look now. Do you see there what yeah, I did? Okay. Yeah, I got the name of the title in yeah, my answer. Well done. Yeah. When I spoke to Paul about those sessions and about the demos, yeah. I think I think I was so enthused about those acoustic demos yeah. that I think I irritated him. In fact, I know I did because because <laughs> he still agrees that the other ones are better. And he also, I think, those collaborations were very fruitful and yeah. I, I don't know maybe too fruitful for him i, I don't know if you oh, know, I what don't I mean. know about yeah. that yeah. i mean you know we'd had a ball and and i see him he, he's only great i mean i and he doesn't have to explain anything to anybody he can do exactly what he chooses and he's ended up making that bare bones record a couple of times yeah so it just wasn't the moment that he really felt it so that's the thing you come to stop you know this is the sort of cut out doll aspect of pop music as i would think of it you know where you get to dress the people up like you think they should be right that isn't actually how life is right and it's not like that again you don't do that with your doctor you go and actually ask them their opinion on based on their expertise so do the same thing really maybe they'll come with a different thing and you'll like the next one if you don't like this one what are you worrying about so much there's so, <laughs> enough, so much music out there why does it matter so much you know and i will ask one more which is just that you said recently that you truly don't care about your legacy is that really true i mean you, you well I, I won't be around to worry about it, is what i mean i don't yeah. think that i go some conscious place what i believe about what happens when we leave here is i can't explain in in two seconds and why would i that's for your confessor if you have one but i don't i don't really worry about it because i i'm not worried actually about it right now because i don't need to think about the legacy i think about the actual songs and what how are they going to make a place in my next show yeah that's all i think about and i think about the balance between old and new and well known and something that could be a revelation that could be a song i wrote 20 years ago and people maybe have never heard it maybe because i didn't get the recording right and i've still got the opportunity to present it as as a new thing let alone songs, as in the case of this, some of which were written a couple of months ago and some of which were written 25 years ago. Yeah. But the point is that we set out to make them with a head that was focused on making the best of everything that we had that showed what we could do now, what we felt now, not... I mean, I seem to be hitting the word now like I'm being a pitch man, but it's true, it's about now. Even though it's founded on these things that I've learned over the years and the little bits of technical ability that I didn't have to begin with, which contrasts with, well, it's just what I can make of these these tools. There'll be another record for those, you know, those blunted tools, because that's a picture you want to make. Right now, it's this picture I'm making, you know, and I think all the people that I like have gone through those sort of transitions throughout their career, and that's what makes, that's what makes music interesting, is not that it isn't all the same. Well, Thank you very it. much. Great talking with you. Thank you. Really good talking with you. Take Thank care. you. So that was today's Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Brian Hyatt, and you heard me talking with Elvis Costello. We'll be back next week here on SiriusXM's Volume, Fridays at 1 p.m. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes if you enjoyed us. And as always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.
Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.